Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this inaugural lecture, Professor Andreas Kiprianu gives a gentle introduction to probability theory and its pivotal role in current mathematics research. Welcome. And first of all, please could those of you with mobile phones switch them on. And having said that, it's my pleasant duty this evening to introduce our speaker, Andreas Kiprianu. Andreas earned his BA at Oxford University and his PhD at the University of Sheffield under the supervision of John Biggins. Since then, he has held academic appointments at University College London, Edinburgh University, the University of Utrecht, and Harriet Watt. He also worked as a research mathematician for Shell International Research and Development in The Hague. We were delighted to bring Andreas to Bath as a reader in 2006 and to promote him to a chair in probability in 2008. Andreas has a distinguished record of publications in pure and applied probability. One book, two edited books and over 50 articles in leading journals. In his CV, Andreas notes close to 40 scientists with whom he has collaborated and he gives a long record of research visits to institutions in Europe, America, Australia and Asia. He's been an organiser of 11 conferences and workshops, many on topics in financial mathematics and their relationship to probability models. The picture I see emerging is of an enthusiast who pursues his interests with vigour and wants to share these with others. He works for some of the best-known people in his field and trains new researchers at PhD and postdoctoral level. Andreas has put his gregarious personality to work in building the Bath Probability Lab Laboratory, ProbLab for short, which has brought a succession of visitors to Bath, many with financial support obtained by Andreas and colleagues from research councils and other bodies. These activities have consolidated the university's reputation as a UK centre for probability. In the current climate, the university needs such high-profile activities to make its mark on the research landscape and earn the esteem of our peers in the various reviews that take place. Just as importantly, visitors and external collaborations add vitality to a research group and stimulate new thinking and new results. I think the title of this evening's lecture gives an excellent picture of our speaker. He has jumped back and forth between England, Scotland and Holland on his way to Bath. In his research, he has leapt from theory to applications and back again to more theory. His dynamic approach motivates colleagues and stimulates the visitors he attracts here. I have a quotation to give you. Life without celebrations is a long road without inns. I wonder if Andreas can fill in the attribution, but uh, we shall see. Tonight, we celebrate the appointment of Professor Andreas Kiprianu, and it's my pleasure to invite him to deliver his inaugural lecture on jumping about in applied probability. Well, thanks, Chris, for that very, very kind introduction. Um, uh, it's also thanks for the invitation to, to speak here tonight, this lecture series. Um, 
the audience divides pretty much into mathematicians and non-mathematicians. For the mathematicians, I'm sorry if this talk doesn't quite reach your expectations of technical depth. And for the non-mathematicians, I'm sorry if this talk <laughs> exceeds your expectations of technical depth. Okay, <clears throat> well, when people ask me what I do for a living, I tell them I'm a probabilist, so that means I'm a mathematician, I work at a university, and I'm engaged predominantly in research and teaching, in particular in the theory of probability. So these are the kind of reactions I get to that. So the most common reaction I get is, can you tell me how to win the lottery? And the answer is, of course, no, otherwise I won't be standing here tonight. Uh, are you a coin tosser? <laughs> I have to be honest, there was one occasion when the word coin was omitted. <laughs> and perhaps uh, some of the more curious answers, like, oh, well, uh, we don't understand what, what is there to do in maths? What, what research could you possibly do in probability? I mean, this is a larger question about mathematics. I mean, you, can't, you, you know how to add up all the numbers, what left is there to do? <laughs> well, this talk, I'm going to try and answer the, the third question there. I, I'm going to give you a gentle overview of some, but not all, uh, of the active areas uh, in, in, of research in probability. Not necessarily my own research. Some of the research will touch upon what I'm doing, but generally it's going to be what I am interested in. But I should emphasise it's not a complete picture by far. Ask a different probabilist to give the same talk you get a completely different uh, set of slides. Who's that? <laughs> this is our family pet hamster. She's called Fat Lily. Don't ask me why it's the kids who named her. This is a Van de Graaff generator, which you may recognise from school. There's a big pile of money. And here is Osama Bin Laden. <laughs> Okay, so what we're going to do is just to theme the talk. I'm going to try and connect all these four things together through the, the, the strands of research that I'm going to talk about. I should say, don't get excited. It's not the case that I'm paying Osama Bin Laden lots of money to conduct evil electrical experiments on my pet hamster. It's something a little more subtle than that. Well, am I a coin tosser? Actually... It turns out I am because one of the most fundamental and basic models that arises in probability theory is the random walk. And the random walk can easily be seen by a simple experiment tossing coins. So we take a coin out of our pocket and we toss it again and again and again. Every time I see a head, I'm going to take this black dot here and increase it by one. And every time I see a tail, I'm going to decrease its position by one. I'm going to pl plot the resulting trajectory. So on this axis, we're going to see the number of tosses. And on this axis, we're going to see the position, the resulting position, the aggregate position. Okay, so we've got a head, a head, a head, a tail, a head, a head, and so on. Now, as we keep going, what evolves is, I would like to call it a random trajectory. Okay, so a random trajectory... Because if I perform the experiment again, so I rub this all out and start again tossing my coin and draw the same picture again, I'm going to most likely see a completely different trajectory evolving. Okay? <clears throat> now, 
here I've plotted some, but not all, of the possible trajectories we might see if we toss the coin a hundred times. Okay, now actually what I would like you to think of is a trajectory meaning the result of plotting the path if we toss the coin an infinite number of times. Not just a hundred times, but if we keep going forever and ever and ever and ever, and of course I don't have enough space on this slide for that. I've only plotted the first hundred. Okay, now how many trajectories would we generate that way? How many possible traje trajectories could I see? Well, it doesn't take much thought to realise you'd see an infinite number of trajectories. In fact, for those of you who know what know I mean, you'd see an uncountable infinity of trajectories. And what would be the probability of, each, of seeing each one of those trajectories in that infinite coin-tossing experiment? Well, there's a half-half chance of going up or down. So basically, the probability of seeing any one of these infinite trajectories is a half for the first step times a half for the second step times a half for the first step, and so on. So it's multiplying a half an infinite number of times, one for each step of the trajectory. All right. Now, if you multiply a half an infinite number of times together, you get zero. Half times a half is a quarter, times another half is an eighth, a sixteenth, a thirty-two, so it's a number that goes down to zero. So we've got a problem there. We've got a problem because we have an infinite number of paths here, and we see one of them with probability zero. Okay? But we know that we see one path when we conduct the experiment. Okay? So if we add up all the probabilities, we should get one, because with probability one we see something. So we reach the one and only formula I have in this talk, which is adding up an infinite number of zeros, infinity times zero, should be equal to one. Okay, so before you think about this too much, <laughs> turn your brain to mush. So I have cheated you a little bit. But what this is really about, the reason why I put this slide up, is to motivate the idea that already with this very simple exercise of tossing coins, we hit a mathematical problem here. All right? We need something a little more sophisticated to describe what's going on here if we're going to be rigorous. And it turns out that there is a theory to help us with that, and it's called measure theory. Now, measure theory is literally, as it sounds, about measuring things, lengths, areas, volumes, and also more abstract things like probabilities. Measure theory was formulated around the turn of the last century. So not surprisingly, if we look to the date where we get a rigorous formalization of probability theory, that means an axiomatic treatment of probability. Well, it comes from this man, Andrei Nikolai Kolmogorov, and the exact date we can pinpoint is 1929 when he publishes this paper, General Measure Theory and the Calculus of Probabilities, giving birth to what we call measure theoretic probability. Okay, and this is the basis on which we do all probability today still. But the interesting thing here is not that it was published in a communist journal and nobody could read it because it was in Russian, but the date, which is 1929. Now, if you compare that to the age of mathematical topics such as algebra, analysis, uh, number theory, geometry, okay, they go back hundreds if not thousands of years. 
Okay, here we're only talking about the last 80 years. So probability theory is very much in its infancy. Okay? That's not to say we don't find scientific dialogue going back hundreds of years, but an axiomatic, formalized version of this theory comes just 80 years ago. Okay, so even though probability is, it, relatively speaking, apparently in its infancy, it has, of course, evolved at a time when mathematics is better understood than any, and it's really accelerated in the last 80 years to the point where I would say it's now a main pillar of research in modern mathematics. And this is partly because of the intrinsic beauty of this theory, as well as, of it, as its interdisciplinary interconnectivity with other fields of mathematics, as well as other applied sciences. Now, I said that random walks are very important and fundamental. Okay. Now, let's push that a bit further. So, one of the problems you might see with a random walk is that it's, it's a very discrete object. It's discrete because, if you remember, it only moved at really integer numbers of times, okay, the number of tosses, or if you think about time, integer times, and it only explored integer or whole numbers in space, okay, because we only moved it up or down by one unit, okay. What we would like, for some of the applications we'll see later, <coughs> is something which has a value at all times, not just integer times, and has the possibility of exploring every number between minus infinity and plus infinity. Okay, so there's a nice way of constructing such a process which we're going to call Brownian motion. And we do this as following. You take, as you take your random walk and let's construct now this arbitrary time interval, let's say one minute of time. And I'm going to take my random trajectory I'm going to squeeze it into this unit time interval. Okay, so imagine taking 100 steps and pushing it so it fits into this 0, 1 time interval. Or I might take 200 steps and squeeze it in, or 1,000 steps, or a million steps. Okay, now if I, the more steps I push in, obviously because the random walk has more time to explore more of the integers, as I push more and more in, I'm going to get more extremes, higher and lower extremes in the path. So it might be wise to rescale the vertical part of space as I push more and more steps in here. Now it turns out, if you squeeze in n steps, where n is a whole number, and you rescale space, or you divide vertical space by square root of n, as you take n to infinity, that means you push more and more steps, you get stability, it converges to something still random, but nice a Brownian motion. So a random trajectory which has a value for all real times and has the possibility of visiting every number between plus and minus infinity. And we call that Brownian motion. Now there's a lot of mathematical structure in the resulting object and I'm going to spare you the gory details. Okay? But before we move on to an application or two let me just remark that we can do this not just in what I would call here one dimension, because this is the space in which the Brownian motion wiggles around, up and down. That's one that we can go for higher dimensions. We can go for three, four, ten, a million dimensions. Now try plotting a million dimension 
running motion on the slide. It didn't really work very well, so let's go for two. <laughs> the procedure is essentially the same. Okay? Now, instead of flipping a coin with two sides, we could make it a bit more exotic and say, I'll flip a coin with, say, ten sides. Each side is telling me a direction and an amount, a distance in which to go, somewhere in the plane. Okay? can do this reasonably arbitrarily. Okay, so we could build up by flipping that 10 side of code, we could build up the path of a random walk looking like this, and then a similar scaling procedure would result in a trajectory which has a value at every moment of time and now has the possibility of exploring the whole of the plane. Okay, and just to re-emphasize, because the original experiment produces a, random, a randomized trajectory, the resulting rescaled object has a random path. So do the whole thing again, and you get a different looking project trajectory. Very beautiful. I should, I'd like to mention that a lot of the pictures here of random paths were generated by my postdoc, Jose Luis, is sitting there. Thank you very much for doing that for me. Uh, okay, what can you do with a Brownian motion? Why is it so interesting? Well, I've forgotten that I have to tell you about this first. <laughs> I'll tell you about this. Now, Brownian motion turns out to be a long time coming. So as I was reading up about Brownian motion, so there's a little story which we'll come to about where the name Brownian motion comes from. So it turns out you, you can really go back quite a long way. So this is Titus Lucretius Carus. So he's a, a, a Roman poet and philosopher. And around 60 BC, he writes a six-volume epic in which he, well, it's called The Nature of Things, and he tries to give a rational description of the world and the universe around us. Okay, for those who fear God, it would be better to give a rational description and then one doesn't have to worry too much about you know, being struck down by lightning. So... He borrows a lot of ideas from, for example, Democritus, the idea of living in a vacuum with atoms, that's the smallest unit of mass, and everything is built up from these atoms. When they stick together, they make matter like human beings. But there are still lots of atoms floating around in the atmosphere. Or the atmosphere is atoms floating in the vacuum, I should have said. And he makes a very interesting observation in one of the volumes of his poem. He says, look, when light is streaming through the window, you see dust dancing around in the light. Now, why is the dust dancing around in the light? Because, essentially, it's making an infinite number of collisions with the many free atoms that zoom around in the vacuum. Okay, now, this was a very important idea that, unfortunately, seems to have got lost and resurfaces hundreds, if not thousands of years later with, amongst several experiments. One notable is that of Robert Brown in 1827. He looks down, he's, he's a botanist, he looks down a microscope at a um, particle of pollen suspended in water and he sees that the pollen is wiggling around in a very erratic way. Okay, now this observation contributes again to the theory of atomization, the theory that the universe is a vacuum filled with atoms, the building box of all matter. And what many people don't know is that the same year that 
Albert Einstein wrote or published his first paper on relativity theory, he also wrote a paper in which he studied how a free moving particle amongst a field of kinetically charged, let's call them atoms, would what the resulting movement would be. And he concluded it would have to be random and it would have to be what we've described earlier as Brownian motion. Okay? So it was the first mathematical treatment, or at least it was thought to be the first mathematical treatment of Brownian motion, thanks to Albert Einstein. In fact, that turned out not to be true. I'll come back to that later. Uh, but the reason why we call it Brownian motion is because of the, the observations of Robert Bann. Perhaps we should have called it Lucretian motion. Okay. Well, let's come back to one of those four photos. So here is a Van de Graaff generator. So you probably all remember this from school. It's uh, an instrument we use to do electrical experiments when we learn about electromagnetism. And if you recall, it's a, a metal sphere, and there's a tube with a, with a band that goes up. So you turn a little handle at the bottom, turns the band. The band turns an axis inside the sphere, there are brushes on that axis, and as they stroke against the interior of the sp sphere, it charges it up. Okay? Then you put your hands on it, and if you had hair, hand <laughs> up on end. Now let's take that into abstraction. Let's suppose that we have a sphere in a vacuum, with a vacuum in it, and we're somehow maintaining an electrical potential on the surface of the sphere. Perhaps by charging it up and taking the, the rod away. But let's just imagine we've done that abstractly. Okay, and it doesn't have to be an even charge around the surface of the sphere. It can somehow be maintaining different parts of the sphere with different electrical potentials. Right. Classic question, how do you compute the electrical potential inside at any point inside the sphere, in the vacuum in the sphere? There are a number of ways of doing this. If you're an analyst, you would say, well, there are these things called Maxwell's equations, they're partial differential equations. You would write down a boundary value problem and solve it. Okay? But as a probabilist, I would say, oh, there's a much easier way of doing this. Right? What I would do, there's this sphere and its abstraction. I would say, well, look, I want to work out the electrical potential just there, which is inside the sphere. So what I'll do is I'll run a Brownian motion, a three-dimensional Brownian motion, let it wiggle around until it first hits the boundary of the sphere. Okay, I'll look at the point at which it exits the sphere, and I'll look at the electrical potential precisely at that point. Remember, we're maintaining an electrical potential across the surface of the sphere. The path is random. And therefore, the exit point is random. It's distributed somewhere across the surface of the sphere. And therefore, the electrical potential I observe at the point of exit is random. It's randomized by the path of the Brownian motion. If I take an average of all possible outcomes of this experiment, so that would be an average of the exit or the value at the exit point over the surface of the sphere, it turns out that gives me precisely the potential, the electrical potential, the point at which I started the Brownian motion. So all I need to do 
Because whenever I want to work out an electrical potential, I just stick a Brownian motion there, let it go until it hits the boundary, and take the average of the outcome. Right. Now, we can do that. you don't physically have to do that. You can do that on paper, mathematically. So there's one potential. And it has actually much uh, more important ramifications than just working out electrical potential in spheres. So that there's a whole family of mathematical problems which boil down to something similar to working out potentials inside domains, this domain being a sphere. Okay, now there are analytical ways of doing that, but there are also probabilistic ways of doing this. And this is a very core example of an alternative method. And you get all sorts of added information by the fact that you're using a brand new motion. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's a different mathematical perspective. What else can you do with a brownie motion? Well, you can make a nice poster for your inaugural <laughs> lecture. So now that you've seen what brownie motion is, you probably uh, recognise this squiggly line here. Could possibly be brownie motion. Well, actually, have a good look, and you'll see this is financial data, probably taken from the Financial Times. And I think you can just read here, it says share price there. So this is something typically you would see if you open the Financial Times. You see loads of numbers and the odd squiggly graph. In fact, let's look at some real data. So I pulled, I pulled this. <laughs> I, you can see this here. It's coming down a bit. <laughs> I pulled some data off the BBC webpage. So this is the price of a share of British Petroleum. Uh, here we've got a time scale of days, in effect, or months. And this is within, I mean, this is the day I pulled it off. I don't remember which day it was. But certainly, it seems I pulled it off around half past two in the afternoon. So trading started at eight, wiggly, wiggly, wiggly. And if I zoom out and I look over a period of days, I still see wiggly, wiggly, wiggly. Now you look at that and you see, well, look, it seems to be a scaling property here. So apparently, just naively looking at that, you see, well, if I zoom in to this path, so this is what this is doing, it's zooming in. I apparently see the same kind of dynamic going on, just by looking at pictures, which is not very rigorous, as what I see over a period of days, months. Okay, now that's a property that Brownian motion has. If you think about it, we, we squeezed an infinite number of steps of a random walk and rescaled to fit a unit time, and we got the resulting path being a Brownian motion. So if you kind of zoomed in just a little bit, not an infinite amount, just a finite amount, you would expect to see essentially the same thing there, okay? Because you've squashed an infinite path in, so zooming in a little bit is not going to make much difference. You're still going to see an in the result of squashing an infinite path. So there's a rescaling variance that occurs with Brownian motion, which might, you might say, well, I can see the same thing here. So should we believe that we could model this with a Brownian motion? Well, these three guys did. Fisher Black, Myron Scholes, and Robert Merton. They wrote some, re they published some research in the 1970s, around 1973. And what they did was they, they said, look, let's model a stock market as a bank account, which gives you a fixed rate of return for borrowing and saving, the same rate, and some randomly evolving stock. Okay, we'll use Brownian motion to describe the randomness. And amazingly, in this very simple model of the stock market, they managed 
to show that one could come up with an exact formula for the price of certain financial derivatives or options as we might know them today. And not only that, ways of hedging in order for a bank to replicate the claim on an option. That's rather technical language. It doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is they managed to produce a closed mathematical theory in order to describe how one should do fair banking with certain financial derivatives. Now, at the time, this was considered witchcraft, 1973. Their work was poo-pooed, but... Although Fisher Black died in 95, Scholes and Merton uh, won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 97. However, Meyer and Scholes got a bit cocky. He set up a hedge fund in 1998 and lost $4.8 billion hedging on the theory which he himself had produced over a period of just four months. I bet that wiped the smirk off his face. <laughs> well, he made a mistake. He made a fundamental error. And the error was that he forgot mathematical model is only as good as its assumptions. And of course, they'd only really put a basic financial model down. And th there was no evidence to, to be sure that the dynamics of stocks are indeed controlled by Brownian motion. Nonetheless, they gave birth to yet another modern field of mathematics that we call financial mathematics. Okay, now this is a field which, although their, their work was around in the early 70s, this is a field of mathematics which has really taken off, I would say, 15, maximum 20 years ago. So it's a very, very young field of mathematics. I'll just come back to that in a second, but let me make another historical note. I'll come back to Einstein now. I said Einstein... Many thought Einstein gave the first mathematical treatment of Brownian motion. Because of the popularity of financial mathematics in the 90, 90s, uh, a number of people at the Ecole Normale in Paris managed to dig out a PhD thesis which had uh, slipped down the back of a radiator or something <laughs> due to this guy called Louis Bachelier. Okay? And he'd written a PhD at the Ecole Normale in 1900 called The Theory of Speculation. And in this thesis, he'd attempted to describe the evolution, the random evolution of stocks in the Paris Stock Exchange. And amazingly, there in his thesis was a mathematical description of Brownian motion. So once again, the French managed to put their man up there in the Hall of Fame before everybody else. So, in fact, now we, we, we attribute the first mathematical treatment of Brownian motion to Louis Bachelier within what is now financial mathematics, but amazingly at the date 1900, way before his time. Back to math finance from the technical point of view and back to this data. What went wrong for, Scholl, uh, for um, Myron Scholes? Perhaps he'd overlooked the fact that maybe Brownian motion is not a good way of modelling this evolution. Perhaps there are many other different randomly evolving, evolving trajectories or stochastic processes, as we like to call them, which could successfully and perhaps better model these paths. In particular, if you look around here, 
Is that really a continuous past that we're observing, or is that perhaps a discontinuity in the past? Is that a sudden shock or a jump? Okay, if you look closely, there are a number of points. Now, remember that Brownian motion is a, a stochastic process, a randomly evolving trajectory, which has a value at all times, so but it doesn't matter how frequently we sample data from the markets, we're effectively going to have to sample it at discrete time, in seconds, minutes, whatever. Now, although this seems to be a continuous path here, of course, that's just because when you line up pixels on a computer, you know, there's not enough fineness. There's a limited number of pixels, so in fact, anything could be happened between two neighbouring pixels here. Well, it turned out, with this excitement in math finance through the 90s to the present day, that the general model, which is accepted to do a slightly better job, and this is arguably not much better, but nonetheless better than Brownian motion, is something called a levy process. Now, this is named after another French mathematician from the École Normale, also uh, his name is Paul Levy. Interestingly, he poo-pooed the work of Louis Bachelier. And, well, if you are unhappy about the description of what a Brownian motion is, we better stay well away from the technical construction of a Levy process because it's a lot more horrendous. So what I'll do is I'll talk you through some uh, qualitative properties of Levy processes. So I'll show you some paths of Levy processes. Here's a path of a Levy process which moves in one dimension, so it moves up and down through time. So the first thing to note is it obviously has jumps in it, okay? So it jumps around. What you can't see, because this is a computer simulation and we've got a limited number of pixels with which to plot things, is that there are actually an infinite number of discontinuities along the path of this Levy process. So it's a randomly evolving trajectory such that there are an infinite number of discontinuities. Most of them are arbitrarily small, they're itsy bitsy discontinuities, and we occasionally see a big one. There's a big whopper there. Okay? Now, discontinuities are random in their amplitude and they occur, if you like, infinitely often. Now, it's very, very difficult to imagine how you could possibly draw such a thing. That's where measure theory comes in, but as I said, we're not going to go into the details there. Another interesting thing is that the path wiggles around, doing its little jumps, and then it makes a big jump, goes somewhere else, does a nice wiggly bit, sniffing around, and then it does a big jump, and so on. Okay? Another interesting thing about Levy processes is that they're very closely connected to Brownian motion. In fact, Brownian motion is a very special example of a Levy process. Okay? Up to linear, adding linear drift, a Brownian motion is in fact the only Levy process which has continuous paths. Now, there are many parameters we can play with in a Levy process. But if you imagine we've got a, a, a knob we can turn which can somehow temper the randomness or the, 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 extreme, the extremities of the, uh, the amplitude of the jumps, we could play with that parameter, turn that knob around, and we can somehow tone them down, temper them. If we did that, we'd see a path evolving something like this. Okay, so it's looking a little bit more like Brownian motion. 
And if we turn it right down, so we're still getting an infinite number of discontinuities along this path, but of course we're tempering in a mathematical way the randomness in the size of the jumps. Go a little bit further, tie it right down. We're almost back to Brownian motion there. Okay, <coughs> still an infinite number of discontinuities. Levy processes don't necessarily have to have up and down movements. They can have monotone paths. They can have paths which increase. They're just increasing. Okay, so again, we've got something which is climbing, occasional big jumps, but most of the time teeny weeny weeny little jumps. And all the jumps are random, and we experience an infinite number of jumps over each finite time horizon. We'll come back and we'll see one of these later. Now, what's interesting about a levy process, as far as math finance is concerned, and a number of other problems, in particular the problem we looked at with regard to the Brownian motion exiting a sphere, well, for a mathematician, a sphere is basically a circle, and a circle is essentially the same as a line, as far as a mathematician is concerned. So let's just talk about, instead of a Brownian motion, a levy process not exiting a sphere, but passing across this threshold here. Because we've now got jumps in the path of this random trajectory, the way in which this process first exits across this threshold could be by hitting it, like random motion does, continuously approaching it and touching it, or it could do so by a jump. And because the path is random, then of course the event, whether it touches it or jumps over, is random. And if it jumps over it, the amount by which it jumps over it is also random. Okay? Now, from a financial point of view, if we were to use this to model the evolution of a random stock and we had some kind of contract, an option which said, okay, look, if your stock exceeds a certain threshold, then some other payment kicks in or a premium kicks in or you get some kind of return on your investment, then obviously the amount, if that depends on the amount by which you exceed that threshold, then you need to understand the randomness in this, what I call, overshoot. That's a very difficult problem because, of course, there are an infinite number of possible outcomes here, an infinite number of trajectories, and this overshoot depends on everything that's happened up to the moment it jumps across. Now, this is an area of research in which I'm quite active, but I'm going to move on to something else now. So just like Brownian motion, we could look at a levy process which moves around <coughs> in a higher number of dimensions. Again, we'll stick to two. So here we've not got time on this axis. We've got x, spatial axis number one, and y, spatial axis number two. So there's no sense of time here, but we could imagine our levy process is dancing around, and it jumps over here, dances around, jumps over here, dances around, and so on. Okay, so we get, just like the one-dimensional levy process, we get this phenomenon of clustering the levy process likes to hang around somewhere, doing lots of little jumps, and then boom, off it goes somewhere else. We can accentuate this phenomenon. If, again, I play with my dial, where I can 
either temper, tone down the randomness in the jumps or alternatively tone that up a bit. Here we see a case where we're getting a huge jump over here. So again, we're wiggling around, clustering our little jumps around here. And we're going to jump and make a little cluster here and so on. And here's a very extreme case. Okay, so you're wiggling around a little, big jump here, fiddle around here, big jump over there, fiddle around there and so on. This has everything to do with Fat Lily. If we release Fat Lily back into the wild, I presume that would be the Syrian desert, this is exactly how she would forage for food. So it turns out biologists have found a very appropriate way of modelling how certain animals forage for food is a levy process. Okay, this is exactly what they do. They spend a little bit of time randomly foraging in one area, they abandon that, scurry off somewhere else, start foraging over here, abandon that, go over here. And this turns out to be an optimal way of looking for food. At least, what we, that's what we're told by biologists. Not only for fat lilies, but for other animals like bees, albatrosses, the way in which they hunt, and sharks similarly. In fact, there's a whole catalogue of animals which behave in this way. And, Amazingly, it turns out that you behave in this way as well. So I read a very interesting article in New Scientist which said, well, have you ever thought about how you look for your keys when you've lost them? <laughs> All right, so what do you do? You go in the drawer, you start looking in the drawer, you abandon that, then you go upstairs, you start flinging things out of the cupboard. Okay, you're doing a levy process. <laughs> And in fact, it turns out that town planners, architects, and, and other, uh, other types of uh, people involved with buildings have also started taking note of this. Now, have you ever been to Ikea and seen somebody got, get Ikea rage? You ever heard of this? <laughs> right? So this is where you go to Ikea... You want to start foraging, you see all these bits of plastic and wood and you want to start foraging, okay, but you're forced to work in this linear passage around the store and some people, this can affect them very badly, they just go completely mental and start throwing meatballs around. Okay, well, we've seen Fat Lily, we've seen the money, we've seen the Van de Graaff generator. What about Osama bin Laden? So let's move on to one last application of levy processes. So here I've got a dartboard, all right? But my dartboard isn't round, as I told you, for a mathematician, a circle is as good as a square, a line, anything. You can just bend them to what you want with them. So my dartboard is a unit interval, and just like a dartboard, it's partitioned. But I've partitioned mine up into some arbitrary way. It doesn't really matter. Now, I'm not interested in the scores you get when you throw darts at this. These are obviously going to be my throws of darts onto this dartboard. What I'm interested in is how the darts collect together in the different sections of my dartboard when I throw them uniformly at random. So that means I throw them in such a way that they land with equal probability 
anywhere between 0 and 1. Now, in this particular experiment, I've thrown 10 darts. All right? I've thrown 10 darts, and it so happened that the first dart and the fifth dart landed in the same segment. So I'm going to collect them together in one block. The third dart landed there on his own. He goes in his own block. The fourth and the seventh dart came in this segment, so I put them together, and so on. So I get here, remember the experiment is random, I get a random partition of the first ten integers. Okay. Now, in fact, there's something rather special about this partition. It has an exchangeability property. Now, because all darts are thrown, uh, I should have said independently, but randomly in the same way, think about the role of 1 and 9. Okay? If I exchange the role of the first dart and the ninth dart, in particular, if I took a 1, shoved it there, and took the 9 and put it there, I would see a partition which is, in essence, equally likely to this partition here. Okay? The role of the darts, the order in which you throw them, doesn't really matter. There's an exchangeability invariance there. Okay? In terms of the randomness, what you see. <coughs> now, it turns out that this way of partitioning integers is just the right tool we need to build what's called a fragmentation process. There's always one. <laughs> this is my former PhD student. <laughs> so what are we doing? So I'm starting with the first 10 integers. I'm throwing random darts uniformly at this stick which is broken up. And to get from here to here, I'm doing an exchangeable random partition. But what I can do is I can partition further each of these blocks. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically I can use a generalization of this dart-throwing trick that I used to get from here to here to split these up further. Okay, so this 1, 3, 4 got split into 1 and 3. The 4 went on his own. The 2, 9 went together, and the 10 was put off into his own block. Okay, and again, there's something special about this technique of using exchangeable random partitions that if I, could, if I repeat this action, which I haven't described to you in detail what it is, at every step of the way, I see something which is itself an exchangeable random partition. And I create a process which starts with all the numbers in one block, and after applying this partitioning technique, I end up with each of those integers in its own block. Now, another important feature of using an exchangeable partitioning method is that if I do it for 10, instead of doing it for 10, I do it for 11, and I apply this technique, okay, I get, again, an evolution which is random, but if I turn a blind eye to the 11, there's a consistency, okay, the way in which I'm partitioning, the special way using exchangeability, means that if I turn a blind eye to the 11, I see exactly the same evolution as with 10 integers. There's only one caveat there, which is I need one, at least one more partition to get everybody into their own block, because, of course, there's one more integer. If I can do it for 11 and have that consistency property, I can do it for 12. Okay? So using exchangeable random partitions means there's a way of constructing a random evolution of 12 
integers, which is a fragmentation process such that if I turn a blind eye to the 12, I see exactly the same evolution as for 11. All right? Except I need one more partition, at least one more, to get 12 into its own block. Now, if I can do it for 11, 12, I can do it for 100. If I can do it for 100, I can do it for a million. If I can do it for a million and everything's consistent, I can do it for all the positive integers. So in principle, there's a way of building up a process which starts with all the integers, positive integers, in one massive block, okay? And then it fragments and it fragments and it fragments in such a way that if I just focus on the first n integers, okay, I see something like this. And there's a consistency that when I look at the first n plus 1 integers, turn a blind eye to the number n plus 1, I see the same evolution as the first n integers. And of course, it's going to take a lot more fragmentations to get from an infinite number of integers in this to every integer in its own block. But it's possible. Now, where's the connection with levy processes? If we look at the block containing 1, the number 1. In fact, I could have said the block containing the number 43, it wouldn't matter by exchangeability. But let's say the block containing 1. And I look at the size of that block as a percentage or as a, as a, as a fraction of the original block. Okay, so here the first block is 1 relative to its original size. It's one unit of itself. Here we get um, a quarter of the size of the original block, and then the sixth, and then the twelfth, and the twelfth. All right. But what if I did this, not with 12 integers, but 100 integers, and I looked at, again, the proportion of the block containing one relative to the size of the initial block? What if I did that with all the integers thrown into the initial block, all the positive integers? Well, it's clear how that works when we've got finite number of integers, but when we've got um, when we've got an infinite number of integers, <coughs> there's a special way of doing it. We can still describe this ratio of the block containing one relative to the initial block. Now we should expect to see a randomly evolving curve which starts at one at time zero and then somehow works its way down to zero, right? Because one block, one in its own block as a fraction of an infinite size block would be zero. If you take minus log of that proportion and see how it evolves, amazingly, you get a Levy process. Okay. There's an unbelievable connection there between Levy processes and random partitions. Why would you be interested in fragmentation processes? Well, you might be interested in fragmentation processes because you're interested in coalescent processes. That's the opposite. You start with each integer in its own block, and then you try and go back by making random collisions or random coalescences back to one block in which all the integers are together. So here, we might we see a random the result of a random trajectory where the block 1 and 5 at this time, if we think of time in the vertical axis, have coalesced to one block here, represented by this line here. 2 and 3 have coalesced to one block. And then at this point in time, the block with 1 and 5 and the block with 2 and 3 coalesce again. 
And at this point in time, the block with one, five, two, and three have coalesced with the single block containing four. And then here, we end the process. Now, there's a special way of doing this, which involves exchangeability again, such that, well, if we can build this for four, five, we should be able to build it for six, and again, in a consistent way. So that the structure, when we turn the blind eye to six, is the same as the structure we have for five. If we can do it for six with consistency, we can do it for seven with consistency. If we can do it with seven for, with, for seven with consistency, then we can do it for starting with all the integers, positive integers, in their own little block with consistency. Now, these models turn out to be of interest to geneticists who like to think of these phylogenic trees. So, if, we, if you like, you can think of each integer in its own block as representing all the possible genotypes we have on the planet or for a particular species today. And going back through time, we see all the branches where the species have separated themselves from some common ancestor. Okay. Still no sight of Osama bin Laden. Okay. Here it is. Amazingly, I've been reading some social science literature where what they're now interested in is not just fragmentation or coalescence, but processes where you have fragmentation and coalescence in the same model. So we imagine integers collected in blocks, and in time they're coalescing to make bigger blocks, but at the same time, some of the blocks are fragmenting. Now, these are proposed as models for social networks. And one particular family of social networks they're interested in are terrorist cells. Okay, so we think of each block as a terrorist cell. And because of various <coughs> social, economic, and geographical reasons, they, they coalesce and they fragment. So one particular point of interest in this randomly evolving coalescence fragmentation model is, for example, the largest block, because the largest block may be considered to be the most threatening. And of course, for many, this is the face of the worst case scenario. Thanks for your attention. And now I'd like to call on Professor Peter Mertes from the Department of Mathematical Sciences to propose a vote of thanks. Peter. I'm sure we all appreciate that by alerting us to the importance of jumps, Andreas has just saved each one of us $4.8 billion. <laughs> so let us thank Andreas for giving us insight into a fascinating research topic and for a great talk. Finally, let us also thank the organizers, the ushers, and the guests from near and far for making this occasion very special. <laughs>